Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. Chess.com recently launched a new way to learn from your games with a feature called Insights. If you visit chess.com slash insights, you can get detailed stats and analysis in any of the time controls you've played and across any time period. What kind of things can you learn? Well, you can learn what time of day do you play your best, morning, afternoon, or night? What part of the game are you strongest or weakest, opening, middle game, or end game? Are you making more or less mistakes than opponents at your level? You can find out all this great info and much more at chess.com slash insights. I don't know about you, but for me, the biggest challenges in chess are dealing with losses or not seeing improvement as quickly as I'd like. So what's helped? Connecting to other supportive adult improvers. It's a big reason why I built my online membership, Chess Improver Monthly, to be centered on exactly that. As one example, I host a live video chat with myself and other members each month for us to share in our journeys. There are also great forums for discussions with only folks who are positive and respectful. And those are just some of the benefits of joining. There's a link to join the membership in the show notes and on the webpage for this episode. So go to the show notes, then click to join Chess Improver Monthly and connect to our awesome community. Welcome. We have quite the episode for you today. The legendary chess coach and author, Bruce Pandolfini. First, on a personal note, Bruce is a big reason why I play chess at all. In the interview, I mentioned to him how the film Searching for Bobby Fischer was the catalyst for me taking chess seriously in my life. After being inspired by the film, I rushed to buy all of his books and study them, and then I went on to compete in chess. Bruce was, in many ways, my first chess coach, and why I even have this podcast right now. So it's really exciting to have the opportunity to speak with him. Now, quick aside, as luck would have it, while the interview, I believe, came out really good, there were some technical recording issues I didn't notice until after we were done, one of which was that the recording used my crummy little laptop mic instead of my nice podcast mic. But... I got some fancy editing, and I don't think the sound is too much of a downgrade. With the audio issues addressed, let's dive into the background on Bruce. Bruce is one of the most acclaimed American chess authors, and he's amongst the most prolific, having written dozens of well-known instructive chess books. He's been the coach of some of America's top chess talent, including Fabiano Caruana and Josh Waitzkin. And Josh, you probably first heard of from the massive 1993 hit, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Bruce is also involved with the other huge chess film or series that we all know, The Queen's Gambit. He gave the book, and by extension the series, its title, and he was the primary chess consultant for that show. And that's just a brief overview of what he's accomplished. Bruce has had many other achievements in the chess world, which there's not even time to cover. <laughs> and Bruce is still an extremely busy guy, so I'm really honored that he took an hour to do this interview and share his great stories and wisdom with all of us. Here's my conversation with Bruce. Enjoy. Hi, Bruce. Thank you for being on the show. How are you today? I'm fine, Daniel. How are you? 
I'm doing great. I'm very excited to have you on the show. One thing I want to mention before I launch into all the questions is uh, my my gratitude for having you on. And just to let you know, you've, this may not come as a surprise because I'm sure many people have told you this kind of thing before in the chess world, but you were a huge influence on me. In the early 90s, when Searching for Bobby Fischer came out, I already knew how to play chess, but I wasn't serious about it until I saw that film and uh, I did a ton of self-study with all of your books. I probably bought a dozen of your books at that time and that's that movie and uh, your books are what inspired me to be serious about chess and started competing on uh, competing in it in middle school. So uh, you basically launched, <laughs> you were a big influence in, in me getting serious about chess in my entire life. So I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure, the little I did. I've done. Uh, where are you from, <laughs> Daniel, by the way, originally? Where are you from? Uh, originally from Chicago, and I still am in Chicago. Oh, that's interesting, because a, a lot of my family was also from Chicago. So, Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that before we get into it. And uh, yeah, well, let's, let's get started. So as many people know, uh, you've You've done more in chess than almost uh, anybody that I can think of, from coaching countless students to writing books to launching chess organizations and, of course, being a consultant on major chess films. After decades of all that amazing work, what keeps you busy in chess these days? Well, first of all, it's, it's kind of a matter of inertia. You just keep going on. I've been doing this for 50 years, whatever it is I've been doing. I'm not sure. But uh, it's, it's just hard to stop. I also love what I'm, I'm doing, so uh, naturally I've stayed with it. Uh, as far as what I do, I uh, certainly write my columns. I'm constantly preparing to students both what they should study, and I, I put a lot of think time into where I think the sessions and lessons should go. And I'm also looking at my, my notes. I have notes on students Going back to the very beginning when I started in 1972, um, I approached it kind of like a scientist would. I, mean, I, I was an admirer then of uh, Sigmund Freud. And he always kept notes on uh, his, um, his case study. So I viewed students like that. Uh, and, of course, those are very personal notes. But I, I like to look over them from time to time to see what I've learned. Much of it is nothing really in particular, but you be surprised about the insights you get looking back and seeing how things were and how they've changed through the years. So I review my notes, and maybe one day I'd like to write a, a memoir of some type, how I've gotten by, uh, what it's been like to be a chess teacher, and all aspects of that. So much of that is my what I do on a daily basis. Prepare, write my stuff and uh, think about what I'm going to be doing in the future, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> uh, that's that's really interesting that you still reflect back on notes from the past. I love that. Uh, in fact, that was that kind of uh, segues into a question I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask it uh, now because it just flows from that. Um, and actually, this is a question from my followers, which is, is there anything that um, you would teach commonly to students in the past that you no longer do because you don't find that advice as effective anymore or vice versa maybe something you shied away from in the past but now you find it actually to be quite effective well when i started teaching i mean this is a difficult question to answer but uh probably many things but um when i started teaching 
I didn't know anything about how to do it. There were very few chess teachers in those days who actually made a living from teaching chess. Mm-hmm. The only one I actually knew who did that was Shelby Lyman, and he was very good. Uh, he had an active practice, and he did very well. But there weren't many others. So I had to uh, borrow ideas from the great and the classic chess teachers, people like uh, Lasker and Capablanca and uh, Tarish. And what did they advocate? Well, they believed you should begin with the end game to start with um, because you had to know where you were going to go and certain basics before you could win a chess game. Because they didn't, they didn't really just focus on the end game. They, they started with what's known as the basic mates. And that's not really what most end games are about. Most end games are about uh, converting, converting an extra pawn into a win. Um, so, but I, that's where they uh, emphasized going. So I, I went there, but I, I ran into problems right away because most students would say things like, yeah, but I never get to an end game. Mm-hmm. Why should right. I start doing, <laughs> studying that? Now, of course, I, I had arguments to counter all of that. But that didn't really uh, emotionally uh, or psychologically convince my students so much. I had to deal with their their feelings, you know, because if they have this, these mental blocks on studying something, they're not going to get very much out of what you put forth and what you teach them. So I tried to work with uh, what I perceived as their needs. And so I, I began approaching chess in a more practical way, the, the teaching of it, rather than giving particular material. I relied on a technique, which was to uh, start by, eventually it became, I started playing my students a few moves, not a whole game. That is, if they already knew how the pieces moved, and many of them did, most of them did. How you would teach students who don't know how the pieces move, that's another matter. But when they already knew, I'd play them a few moves and ask lots of investigative questions during the process. And that would only take a few minutes. And after a few minutes, I would get a, a really good sense of who they were, what I thought they needed to do uh, to advance. And I would cater my remarks to what th- that perception of what their level was. And so it was very interactive. It was often never the same other than the process itself, just asking these exploratory questions to unearth uh, who they were. And then I would, I would formulate uh, a plan of teaching attacks, so to speak. So it changed. I mean, uh, from presenting specific ideas in the end game, from the basic mates, how you can play uh, winning the king and pawn ending. And eventually I, I focused on pawn endings and rook, rook endings, rook and pawn endings, because they're so important. But of I course see. we covered everything. But so I, I, I went more with the process, and I also relied a lot on analyzing their own play, and uh, I thought that's very important to critique their play. And it's never pleasant, never pleasant rather. Um, whenever you review anything, you're always comparing it to an ideal, and so you're criticizing the student. So I had to find practical ways of uh, dealing with that. Uh, but that's it: a process and um, how I went about making them feel comfortable, perhaps, so they could learn more and get something out of this game. That's really fascinating. So it sounds like the de-emphasis on endgames, if you will, was more based on just dealing with the psychology of the students and how they, how they felt about the game than it was 
perhaps the, you know just the, the the effectiveness of teaching endgames. It didn't sound like it was as much about like oh you didn't think that teaching endgames was was so effective, but rather just needed to accommodate their expectations. Right. In fact, when they would get something wrong, I wouldn't say that they were wrong. I'd say, did you consider this? Uh, you always have to try to um, put it on an analytic scientific level, not getting too personal in that regard. Now, chess, you, you'll get the, uh, you know, the, the aphorism that you should play the board, not the, the person. But that's ridiculous. If you know something about the person, it's a very human game. Why shouldn't you exploit that and capitalize on it? If you really did know something about the person. I mean, one thing, when I'm working with a junior, uh, a young person, um, I pretty much know what they're thinking from the beginning because Chess is a game of spatial relations. And everything they're thinking really is reflected in their eye movement. So if you just follow their eyes, that's the biggest tip-off of where their thoughts are going. My students often think I'm a mind reader because I can tell them what they're thinking. But, of course, I'm just reading their eyes. Now, as you get more sophisticated in life, you can try to disguise that. But kids can't do that so much. So they're very (laughs) revealing in what they're thinking. And I work that into my presentation. And um, discuss. I'm, I'm always trying to, by the way, get them to do things in their heads. Mm. Because chess, you have to see the positions. There. You have to be able to analyze. Right. And they always want to grab the pieces and move them. And <laughs> I had a simple way of dealing with that all the time. If they touched the piece, it was automatically wrong, even if they got it right. That wow. slowed them down. Because I wanted them to discuss chess. So, because that's what you have to do. You have to see everything in your head and try to work as much as you can. You can't try out an idea, as we all know, and, and see where it goes. And if you don't like it, take it back. <laughs> so I was very much on getting them right away to discuss chess uh, without touching the pieces, which meant, uh, ridiculously, that a lot of emphasis was placed on learning notation initially, because you can't talk chess so much if you can't uh, put it into, uh, you know, uh, notational words so uh i got them to learn notation fairly quickly once you get that out of the way you can talk chess better yeah that makes sense it's amazing to me sometimes how much people will will learn a lot about chess but still kind of falter on on as you say knowing how to talk about it with the notation so just kind of shifting a bit to you as an author and maybe trying to connect that with your experience teaching all these students one thing that stands out to me about your career as an author is just how uh, prolific you've been. You know, many many chess authors may only write you know two to five books in their career that I've seen. You've written dozens, so I'm curious what you attribute that to that that being that prolific. Does it come from this strong desire to help others, which I kind of sense from you? Is it is just simple joy of writing books? How did you produce so much? Well, again, I have no simple answer. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I haven't actually written a book in more than ten years. Right, book writing is hard work. Especially for me, I'm not a natural writer, and I have to think about my thoughts and go over them a lot. Um, certainly, I, I did want to be a writer when I was younger, a general writer, a poet in particular. Hmm. That didn't quite pan out. Uh, but teaching and writing um, do have something in common. It's communication. And as a teacher, I have to articulate my ideas as clearly and as memorably as possible. Um, and so you, you get to be a, a decent writer of a sort by teaching a lot, not perhaps an artful writer, uh, say like someone like Fred Waitzkin, who's a, a fine artist. But I've, 
I've learned how to communicate my thoughts fairly quickly and clearly. And I think that um, I was inspired by a lot of writers to begin with, the chess writers. I mean, they're, you know, you, you, it's hard to uh, replace in the American theater the classics such as uh, uh, Chernev and Reinfeld and Horowitz. Those guys did a really good job. That's what Simon Schuster had hired me for in the early 1980s to replace those books. And that, of course, was ridiculous because they're irreplaceable. <laughs> but I took the challenge. How could I, I, I turn it down? Um, and I had to do I had a nine-book contract at the time, which was I sold without an agent. And that's still considered one of the largest non-agent sold contracts that most professionals have ever heard of. Uh, but I, I was able to do that. And I got a lot of practice. I was forced into writing. Um, Many stories about that are funny and sad. And, hmm. But again, I was doing the impossible, attempting to do, because you can't improve on those guys. Now, it was always said that there were more books written on chess than all of the games combined. I assume that to be true, uh, even back then. <laughs> I don't know if it's entirely true now with all the fantasy games and the things out there now, but there are a lot of things written on chess. And I have to tell you that some of the stuff being put out now is remarkably good. Uh, because as we've had more practice actually teaching people, uh, we've learned ways to uh, present that information that tends to be more helpful. And you have all kinds of remarkably good teachers uh, that have come along through the years and built upon uh, the, uh, what they've learned from other teachers and the books that are out there. So there's tremendously great chess literature out there. So in my case, it just sort of happened uh, that... I got into chess writing. Actually, it happened earlier than that. Uh, in the very even beginning, you know, I don't know how many books I've actually written. Uh, I, I wrote books that were never published. I think I, I must have a dozen books that were never published. Wow. And I probably have ideas for other books. Only because I didn't pursue it. And, uh, things happened through the years, and I didn't find it so exciting. Sometimes you have a, a title that makes for a book, mm-hmm. and you don't even have a book yet. I was once sitting in a bar with a couple of other chess teachers and we had just come from, I think the Marshall chess club and we were observing their tournament and we were talking about it. And one of the guys happened to say something like, um, yeah, that was a nice trap that so-and-so played. And one of the other chess teachers sitting with me then said, yeah, you, you really zapped him. And so I began <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. Traps and zaps traps and zaps and suddenly i had the title for my next book i didn't have a book yet <laughs> but i had a title and i was able to sell a title <laughs> yeah it's a great title and i actually had that one growing up and uh that's fascinating that it was the content was born out of the title <laughs> just one thing that came to my mind as you talked about all this Bruce, where they said that your publisher had the expectation of replacing the old classics you knew that that wasn't really um, but it makes me wonder what standard, if any, did you set for yourself as you were writing these books? I mean, obviously it wasn't, you know, I don't think any writer kind of has that idea anyhow to replace classics of, of any genre, but did you have a standard that you set for yourself? Is there a goal that you wanted to achieve in, in writing each one? Well, I want to describe everything as clearly as possible. Uh, even the moves and rules I felt could have been described better at points. And so I said a how to uh, put them in terms I thought could be understood more easily. Um, I think I was inspired by a number of 
real world major writers such as Bertrand Russell, who I thought was incredibly, remarkably clear and could describe anything better than anyone else. And some of the British philosophers I was very impressed with, like Alfred North Whitehead and G.E. Moore. I felt these guys could really talk about things. And I'd like to do that for chess. In fact, when I was 20 or 21, I spent a week in an Episcopalian monastery, which is a great experience. I'm not Episcopalian, by the way, but it, it gave me a chance to be alone for a week because the monks don't talk to you. And so I read Wittgenstein's uh, track Tatus that week, and I was greatly inspired by his numbered logic, one statement after the other, how each one should follow. And I wanted to do that for chess, and of course that was the genesis of Let's Play Chess, which of course is ridiculously pedestrian in comparison to something as uh, aspiring uh, or inspiring as uh, the Tractatus. But still, it motivated me to try to do something like that for chess, a series of numbered statements from the simplest to the more complex. I, I can't say that it worked, but that's how. I would get an idea like that and try to employ it or put it into effect in, in, in a chess sense. Working in what I garnered from my lessons from actually trying to help people as best as possible. So I always try to strive for clarity, not that I achieve that all the time. By any <laughs> well, I think you did a phenomenal job, and I, I think <laughs> thousands of other chess players would agree with me that your books are, are uh, fantastic in their clarity. How did you decide a, a subject for your book? Was it based on your own strengths that you felt you had as a as a player and a coach? Was it based on maybe, you know, just what you saw your students commonly struggle with? How did you decide uh, the, when, it, when it wasn't from from a conversation in a bar uh, with, with a clever title? <laughs> Outside of those instances, um, uh, how did you decide the subject of, of a book? Yeah. Well, the conversation in the bar simply made me want to go back to more bars, you know, uh, <laughs> at least in the conversation. But um, many different factors play a role. Certainly, what you perceive as a need, mm -hmm. what you're garnering or ga gathering from students and, and teaching along the way, my own interests. Um, I, I like showing uh, where possible uh, entire games. Uh, because even when you're presenting the end game, uh, I like to display how chess is an integrated whole, that you can have uh, a concept come out in the point structure early on that leads all the way to the end game. And so you don't want to necessarily separate the force of the phases. After all, they don't really separate. These are arbitrary distinctions that we uh, use to simply talk about the game better. But that's not really what's happening. The game just keeps going on. You don't have, ah, oh, the openings now is over. Let's get into the middle game. It's not quite like that. And much of it is transitional as well. Um, and so these arbitrary distinctions are just helpful for us to talk about chess somewhat. Um, where were we going? Oh, that was uh, my so, question. Yeah, uh, my gray so, matter is getting in the way. That's okay. Um, just like, yeah, how you chose the subject of a particular book. What were the factors that went into that? Well, sometimes it is a publishing need. A publisher will ask, can you do a book like this? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when Kaspara played Deep Blue, it wasn't my idea to do a book on that. 
the publisher called me at the last second and said, Bruce, can you do this book in two weeks? I said, what? <laughs> a book in two weeks. That's all right. <laughs> and, but you know, when the, as a professional, as someone trying to earn, earn a living from the game, you have to consider, you know, yeah, I'll take on the challenge. And it is a challenge. I'm up to all those challenges, but I, I won't say you can do your best job. I remember once I had this, as they say, I've had several big contracts. And I came in with a book, and I, I don't know what was wrong with me. I came in with the wrong book three days before an important meeting. That is, I had finished the book, and I looked at the contract and said, oh, my goodness, that's the oh, wrong no. book. Oh, no. <laughs> so in three days, I wrote a book. I didn't go to sleep. It was, I, I had no time for it. You know, cultivated editing or anything like that. I managed to complete the book. That book did incredibly well, by the way. Another book which I put great energy into for two years did abysmally. So you can never tell, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess I adapted to the situation. That's incredible. A book in just, was it, you said two, two days? Three days. Three days. Se- three roughly days. 72 hours without sleeping. I pulled a Walter Brown. You know, Walter Brown would play endlessly without going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and he managed to do fairly well at it. But I, I did that for writing this book. That's incredible. That's incredible. Just shifting now from books to um, talking about chess improvement uh, a little more directly. You know, you said you hadn't written a book for, for about 10 years now. Uh, but in spite of that, you also mentioned that you're still, you know, very active in coaching students. And so that, that really helps, um, I think, maybe a bit with my next question for you, which is, are there any trends in how chess has been taught or learned in the past 10 years that you think are, are positive developments? Uh, I, the answer is yes. Uh, first of all, teachers are learning from other teachers much more so. Hmm. Um, I always felt that if you could observe a good teacher in any discipline whatsoever, uh, you should do so because you, as a chess teacher, you'll get something out of it that you can utilize in some fashion to better your own teaching. But certainly you should observe other chess teachers wherever you can. I've learned a lot from other chess teachers through the years. Uh, in the beginning, I um, formed a company with George Kane and Frank Thornley, um, U.S. Chess Methods Incorporated. And so we get a chance to observe each other um, teaching now and then. And I would watch George, and he was brilliant. Uh, he'd be sitting with a private student, and he'd pose a problem and give the student a few minutes to think without saying anything. As a teacher, with sometimes parents sitting around, you feel compelled to say something because you're getting paid when there's this this uh, void and nothing's happening. But George realized that he had the courage, in fact, to just sit there and give the student a chance to think. Uh, he appreciated silence. So I learned from him that you got to be patient and allow the student to think and not just keep talking. <laughs> I got that fairly on, uh, early on. Um, and I got things from other people. Sal Matera, I observed him, and I loved his intensity. He'd be so focused at the, at the board as a teacher uh, it, it kind of made students really keep their own concentration up. And I tried to be more focused at observing Sal. Anyway, over the course of time, we learned things from other teachers, from books that are out there now that are fantastic. 
And of course, we've had the uh, school programs out there that have shown us more and more things uh, that have really expanded greatly since the uh, in America since the 1980s. And um, we have software and the improvement to, in uh, computers and um, use of the internet. All of this has been invaluable. I mean, now you can study chess. You can click around in positions, cover so much more, go back to where you were very easily without the, uh, the ex- exhausting of time, resetting pieces and all that. Uh, you can do so much. I mean, you lose certain things. You lose, you lose somewhat of the human element. There's a negative side to this. I mean, I'll be sitting around with a student and a parent will have the computer out or the phone out and I'll be analyzing a game and the parent will say, Stockfish says you're wrong. <laughs> of course Stockfish has a, has a better move than me but Stockfish <laughs> can't tell you why the move is better and right. if, if you take my idea if I took my idea which might be slightly different from Stockfish's and not as good I'll win 9 out of 10 times but if the student tries to take the Stockfish idea he or she will lose 9 out of 10 times because they don't understand the concept so right. we have to utilize these tools but we have to Blend it in with um, um, the art of learning as well. You know, the generalizations that aren't always right that help us think better. A lot of chess ideas are encapsulated in little aphorisms when we first learned them. They're not quite right. They only approximate what's happening on the board, and they're often wrong. I mean, yeah. take one as absurd as knights before bishops. What is that right? 51% of the time or something? <laughs> or, you know, it's so, it's so dependent on the situation. You'll yeah. get students automatically moving the knights. You'll get lots of four knights games being played <laughs> without any thinking if you do that. Right. Uh, so you have to take these things with a grain of salt. And I always try to expand these principles and explain them more. Um, even though you have these, these little pithy statements. Uh, that try to encompass the idea that they don't quite do it right. Or you'll get students constantly avoiding doubled pawns, even mm. when they're incredibly desirable in the situation, simply because they've heard double pawns are bad. You have to point out to them all the times that, they, that they're desirable and, and what you get out of it far outweighs the double pawns. And there are different kinds of double pawns. But when students hear these ideas, initially you've got these, these impediments to thinking they follow these things religiously and that's ridiculous so i've had to fight all of that through the years in my teaching and i think you see more and more teachers doing that coming out with more sophisticated descriptions of things teachers now uh more appreciate the dynamics of all these principles how they interact rather than codifying them with simple little statements um showing why that why and how they work but also how and why they don't work and when they don't so you had to do that as a, uh, an experienced teacher. And so that's come out. You know, the, the computers have been great. We over, over rely on them. Someday computers will be able to put things into words better than human beings. They'll be able to give their variations and uh, expand upon them in more accurate and uh, eloquent ways. You're not there yet. It help, it's helpful to have a teacher who can do that. So combining these efforts, Combining the art and the science of teaching chess, uh, I think that's what teachers are doing more and more so now. Teaching has largely been uh, in the world intuitive and artful in the past. It's still that, but when we can get 
logical, scientific information that helps a student learn more so. We should do so. We shouldn't just rely on that end of it either. It's not all science. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, love it. What are a few common traits or, or best practices that you've observed in your top students that contributed to their success? And I just want to qualify that a little bit. When I say top, I don't necessarily mean your highest rated students. I just mean those who seem to improve well because of how they approach the game. Students like Fabiano Caruana and Christopher Yu and through the years, Joel Benjamin, Max Lugie, these guys would have succeeded no matter what. <laughs> you could have said, you know, play for the corner, not play for the center. And they, they would have seen how wrong it is and learned on their own. They don't even need teachers. <laughs> but there are other very talented people, maybe even as a talented to begin with, uh, they just don't take it further, who can say? Um, and they will have certain things in common, even these top students. Uh, for one, although they, they do vary very largely in style and what have you, usually they're very, um, they don't give up easily. Mm. You can't be, you can't be a resigner. <laughs> you got to see how to win. You got to be resourceful and resilient and fight on because that's how you develop the ability to save games. Take someone like Josh Waitzkin, who is so gifted in so many ways. Um, he deserved to win his eight or nine national championships. Uh, but he often had losing positions. Hmm. He won those games against the, his top competitors because he didn't give up. He fought on and you could feel it. When you sat across from Josh, you felt you were up against something. And he's a really nice guy, by the way. <laughs> so that's not it. You have to distinguish between how you are after a game and during the game. There are no friends during the game. It gets back to an, an Aristotelian uh, statement. I think Aristotle, it's a tribute to him, once said, my friends, there are no friends. Well, there are no friends doing competition. Right. Um, <laughs> afterwards, you can be the biggest buddies in the world. And he was a fighter, and so many of the other fighters are fighters. They're also... Um, they know how to analyze. They certainly have to be able to do things in their heads. They're very good at analogous thinking. They and they know how to analogize. They'll take one situation and be able to adapt it to something that works in the present situation. They sense when the principles are about to change, when what used to be important in most positions or most uh, general setups no longer has the same kind of relevance. They're alert to that, generally speaking. Um, so that's another thing. Uh, they, they tend to divide their thinking up better a little bit. They know when they should be uh, thinking more concretely, like on their turn. Mm -hmm. And they, they've learned, they pretty quickly learn over the course of time that you can deal with general concepts uh, better on your opponent's turn. If your clock's running on your turn, you got to get down to business. You can't waste time. You can be more exploratory on your opponent's turn, saying, what would I like to do in the future? You don't do that on your turn. You know, your, your opponent's move, you got to find the move that deals with it and forces your own ends as quickly as possible without inducing or uh, putting any weaknesses into your game as, or as few as possible. That do, does the most. Um, you see, so they, they're like that, but in terms of style, they can be very different. 
So they're fighters. They keep things in their heads. And by the way, they often have good memories. But there's a huge misconception here. The public thinks to have uh, to be a good chess player, all you have to do is have a good memory. Of course, that's absurd. Right. That's not what chess is about. <laughs> right. <laughs> but well, chess players know this, but the public doesn't. They say, oh, he has this like, <laughs> identical memory. That's not what chess is, as we all know. But right. the public doesn't know that. So, uh, <laughs> um, I'm just getting I, a little angry with the public. I, I shouldn't do that. that. No, that's fine. I understand. There's a lot of misconceptions. Two traits that you mentioned, uh, I have a question about. You mentioned one one common trait is they know how to analyze. And then one, another one was um, that they can sense when principles need to change based on the position that they're in. Those two traits, do you find that those are just innate in them, like just raw talent, or is there some way that they uh, studied the game that helped them develop those? Well, I, when I first started teaching, I, I knew top players who would say, you can't teach chess. You can teach moves and rules, but you can't really teach how to play chess. You can't teach someone to be a genius. That you can't do. Uh, but you can show them ways that they can get more of, out of who they are. Um, but that's, again, it won't make them world-class player. But you can open up doors. You can spot problems that they're having that they're not objective about. That's what, it, you know, the top players in the world, they have uh, analysts and seconds who are clearly not as good as they are. What do they get out of them? Well, they get objectivity and a, a sense of being able to uh, analyze things that they can see are problems, potential problems for them. And they do a lot of work for them. But they're not as good as the players. Magnus Paulson's second are nowhere as near as good as he is. <laughs> right. But he's getting something out of them. And so this, that is also true when, when, when teaching. I mean, you can even help. You can teach people better than yourself. Not fully, but you can help them. You can be objective. You yeah. can help them organize their thought better. You can spot trends that perhaps, if you're really good at it. Um, so anyhow, good people, are, I don't know that you can, you can't make someone talented. You can help them bring out their own talents better, I a see. little bit better. And that means something, because little things are of huge value in chess. I mean, at the very top, you, it's really like, you know, the Roman emperors, you're first among equals. Or as Bachmann used to say about the Soviet players, we're, we're, I'm just first among equals, which wasn't quite true, by the way. <laughs> but I understood what he was getting at. They are virtually comparable. And the little things you do mean a lot. Because they're all talented at the top. Studying perhaps a little bit better, or a little more effectively, um, or doing something right, whatever the heck it is, uh, might give you a minimal edge, which is great. So... Right. That's, that's another thing you learn from a study. Little things can matter very much so at, at the top level, or even at lower levels. That's fantastic, Bruce. I love it. Uh, that's really helpful. And I don't know how much you already know this, but my, my audience is, is adults who are mostly in the club-level player, uh, club level, um, uh, in terms of their chess skills. So I think all that will be very encouraging for them to hear that there's ways that they can still learn, even without, uh, you know, perhaps the talent of, of the best players in the world. Yeah, so shifting now to a different subject, because I know my audience also wants to hear about this, and I'm, I'm sure you, you discuss this in almost every interview. You know, your experience in, you know, some of the most 
impactful chess films that have and series that have that have ever existed. You were connected to the two that are the juggernauts, basically, Searching for Bobby Fischer and The Queen's Gambit. I can't help but wonder because it's it's so amazing that there's these two highly impactful chess films and you are uh, deeply involved with both. Did you at all set out in your career at some point to help grow the game through film and television? Or was this simply the result of just being deeply involved in the chess community? I think I was at the right place at the right time. Or should I say the wrong time? Or I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> things just sort of happened. I didn't set out with that as a particular goal to see. Uh, mm-hmm. films bearing on chess and a series bearing on chess develop. Uh, but I, I certainly had to work. I, I have, I don't know what the numbers are. I probably have given, if not more lessons, chess lessons than anyone in the world close to it. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I've given a lot of lessons. In the beginning, <laughs> I used to teach. I was inundated with students. And I, some days I would teach from six in the morning to two in the morning. With very little sleep, um, you would say, "Who takes lessons at midnight?" You'd be amazed at who takes lessons at midnight. You know, from <laughs> rock stars, movie people, artists, chess players, ladies of the evening—all uh, kinds of people take lessons after midnight. Um, I don't give those anymore, but I did when I was young. I gave—I took every single opportunity to teach I could, even if students couldn't pay me. I gave many lessons for free. I didn't even think about it. I took every assignment I could. I don't know why. But by doing so, I made many mistakes, and I also learned a lot. Uh, I didn't want to lose anyone from the fold of chess. I wanted to get everybody involved wherever possible. And if I couldn't do a lesson, I always tried to find other teachers who could. And I never turned anyone away. Anyhow, because of all this teaching, um, I did connect with people in the movie industry and um in advertising, I worked for various advertisers on assignment doing consulting work, even from the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, of course, Searching for Bobby Fischer was based on Fred Waitzkin's brilliant book. What it, 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 it counters a certain trope, by the way. We have these tropes that uh, portray chess that are ridiculous. Right. Uh, one is that I mean, there's so many, like the game is played by old men. You know, in chess clubs, yeah, there's one or two percent of that, or whatever it is. <laughs> right. That's you can have the real talent in the world is youthful, right? That's by far we the best players are young, right? Um, the, the thought as well, they've been around for a long time. The older players, so they've learned so much more. They have so much more to draw upon. That's you've forgotten most of it. And what's really relevant are the new ideas that you want to be able to take advantage of. Not the old ideas which have grown stale and that we've moved beyond. Not that they don't have some relevance, of course, at particular levels. So it's Bobby Fisher, searching for Bobby Fisher, based on Fred's great book, shows that young people uh, uh, certainly counter that image. Of course, with the Queen's Gambit, uh, it showed that women can be as good or better than men. Right. You know, that was another... Uh, stereotype that's ridiculous that the chess world has had to uh, deal with. And there were so many mistakes made in chess presentation from having a dark square on the right, which breaks at chess players when they see that. They say, come on, they can't get that right? They expect (laughs) us to believe that he's the world chess champion and he's playing with a dark square on the right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Can't get that right? 
<laughs> so you'll see that in a lot of chess uh, presentations. I've always tried to count that. Now, sometimes that happened in the art department. What I learned from advertising is because they thought it was a better shot, sometimes they would flip the negative. Mm. They would actually do that. And you get a dark screen or right, and you'll see it on the cover of Alaska's Manual of Chess, one of the great books, the very first edition of it, in the Dover edition, is the dark square on the right, because uh, that's what the art department did. <laughs> Obviously, Emmanuel Lasker knew that you shouldn't have a dark square on the right. I don't think we have to question that. <laughs> no. <laughs> he had nothing to do with it. But the art department didn't. Uh, here's another trope that's always bothered me. You'll have, let's say in film or in television, you'll have two chess players sitting at the board. One will be very thoughtful and will make a move and will say, check. The other one will think for a bit and then answer with, checkmate, which is about as absurd as <laughs> any trope possible. But that is so common in film and television. It is ridiculous. Yep. It, yeah. And, but chess will great at chess players when they see that and they'll see how stupid the whole presentation is because of that. So I tried to get around this, <laughs> all that. It's not too hard. You don't have to be, you know, uh, a genius to get that right. Anybody teaching chess can get that right. Any chess person. Uh, yeah. But they don't. That's the, and it's not always the chess person's fault. Uh, in film, it might be because the cinematographer thinks it's a better shot uh, or what have you. But I, I know and we know we can still get around it. We can do the right thing. It's not that hard. The big thing in, in film presentation or the, uh, illustration is getting the actors, they don't have to play chess well. They have to look as if they play chess well, which means they right. have to be comfortable. And most importantly, they have to be able to grab the pieces and move them as if they're really top level chess players. If you're playing, if you're a baseball player or if someone's portraying a baseball player and they grab the bat in the middle, you know they're not Babe Ruth. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You don't have, you don't need to know more about baseball. Well, it's the same thing in chess. You can tell if someone's in a play, the player looks ridiculous. So you got to get them to look natural at the board. Someone like Anya Taylor Joy is brilliant at that. And she could, she was really quite gifted. She, she would have been a very strong chess player if she had learned early on. And, uh, certainly she really liked chess and you could see it. She was a real pro. She could do almost anything, and she uh, she picked up these ideas and really did look quite natural. It's not so easy to do, but that's the thing you try to do with the actors, make them look like good chess players. I have to laugh because in, in searching, in, in doing searching for Bobby Fischer, Max Pomerantz was the star who knew how to play chess. Hmm. We always joke about it because he did so much fake chess, pretending to look like a chess player. When he played in the chess nationals that year, he finished sixth. Oh, wow. He did so much fake chess, he actually became a good chess player. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that was the third grade nationals. He was eight. Uh, he's a great kid, by the way. Really, he's also quite talented. He could have done anything. Um, yeah. So that's the thing. With, with You want to make sure they look like good chess players. They don't have to play chess well. And you have to get around these ridiculous tropes that or impediments to appreciating the game. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> the chess world is very happy that you were involved in all the projects you were on to help with that, and that's what made part of what made those movies superb. Speaking of searching for Bobby Fischer, 
I know Hollywood can use some creative license and how they depict real life stories, but I'm still curious, like which of the coaching methods or lessons that were portrayed uh, with you in searching for Bobby Fischer were true to life in how you taught Josh? Well, as you, as you just nicely put it, you have to distinguish between Hollywood and real life. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, the, the, the man who developed the screenplay from um, Fred Waitzkin's book was Steve Zalian, who was a brilliant guy. That very same year, he won the Oscar for Schindler's List for writing the, the screenplay for that. Uh, so he had real talent in this way. And he's a very sensitive man. He, uh, he was a director as well in searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, he too could do anything really well. So he tried to get it right, but it's not so easy to render uh, the uh, the artfulness of chess so that it can be appreciated by the audience. Um, so there was some license taken with Josh's lessons, of course. Sure. Uh, I guess the biggest thing I always get is that I really knock the pieces off the board. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like that. Um, I don't know if I should answer that. <laughs> Maybe I should keep the mystery of it. <laughs> I, I have to tell you that thereafter, wherever it seemed opportune, I would knock the pieces off the board. Oh, so really? real life did copy, you know, Hollywood. That's and funny. it has an effect, because if you do that, you will get students paying attention. I can recall when I used to teach classes, I, I'll give you one instance. Uh, I'd have a, maybe we'd give it a cafeteria or something, mm-hmm. and then have 20 or 30 students, and sometimes I would play blindfold chess, which isn't really blindfold chess because you don't have a blindfold on, but you don't see the board. Uh, and so I'd be talking about the moves. The students wouldn't be paying attention. So I would try something outre or outrageous to um, get the attention. So I'd start walking away from the board and having an ordinary discussion with people, and I'd give my next move, and I'd start walking away looking at other boards. And not looking at the board, of course, I was playing the uh, blind, quote-unquote blindfold game on and it'd be suddenly 20 or 30 yards away, paying no attention, but having ordinary conversations. But that was a trick to get students more interested. And sure enough, students who weren't paying attention initially suddenly were all absorbed with the fact that I was ignoring, apparently ignoring the game. Of course, I wasn't. I was very focused on the game. But they didn't know that. I tried to convey a, an impression to get their attention and to uh, get them to listen better. I, and, so I would always do things like that. Or I, I would pose questions, uh, say, on a back-ranked mate, you know, a right triangle mate with a king and rook. Mm-hmm. Let's say the king is, the white king is on e6, black king on e8, they're opposed to each other, and a white rook on a8, a right triangle mate. And I would say that's a right triangle mate if the rook were one million squares away to the left on a, on a a back rank that long, would it still be a right triangle mate? Mm-hmm. These are thought questions. By the way, when I tried to sell chess in the schools, which wasn't cool back then, it was the Manhattan Chess Club School, when I tried to sell it to the New York City Board of Education, it's only because I had example after example of thought experiments like that, that the so quote-unquote critical thinking people of New York City said, Oh, this could be interesting. Maybe we could teach chess that we were able to win over the professionals to allow us to bring chess to the school system. Most of us don't have to do that anymore. Convince schools that chess is worthy and yeah. that has adaptability to other areas. But in the beginning, I did have to do that. 
yeah. <laughs> I did have to prove the, the value of chess. At least, I don't know if I actually proved it. I tried to prove it. Uh, and I was able to do so because I gave example after example like that. That's interesting. I mean, that shift that's happened. At least uh, a significant portion of that credit goes to you for, for doing that. And I love the examples that you gave, Bruce, about how, how you know how you would uh, try to get your students to think and uh, get their attention. I suppose it's not as dramatic as uh, wiping the pieces off of the board, but I still th- I still think it would have uh, been interesting to include one of those in the movie. I still think they would have worked as uh, being intriguing. But I'm not a Hollywood director, so. Yeah, there are other examples. <laughs> Sometimes I would take a student who knew how to do moves in his or her mind fairly well, and we would walk around Washington Square Park without a board talking about a game. Hmm. That could be a lesson. Oh, that's great. I would do things like that. I would always do different things, changing the venue or the approach, because if you're constantly doing the same thing over and over, it becomes stale. You don't want to get to the point as a teacher where you know what you're going to say next. Hmm. Because then it's terribly routine, lifeless, and that's not thinking. You want to get away from that. You want to always be as fresh as possible. So anything I could do to uh, instill some uh, newness to the situation, I would try. Sometimes I failed terribly, and sometimes it would work. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I really appreciate that, that attitude of keeping it dynamic and interesting like that. One more question about searching for Bobby Fischer. Well, actually, it's, it's maybe even less about the film itself and just your, your own experience uh, with Josh. What did you notice about Josh's play the first few times that you saw him that to you showed he had great potential. Yeah, I'm always asked questions like that. Is there what, any one thing uh, that might suggest chess ability? And the answer is no. There's hmm. no one thing. But what I did notice about Josh, he was intense. He really enjoyed what you, he was doing. You know, if you don't, if you don't really love the game, you're not going to be a great chess player. If you don't really love what you're doing at all, you're not going to be great at it. As a teacher, I always tried to show my love for the game. That was the main thing that motivated me, to show why chess was beautiful. If I could put that over to the student and show how why chess is so wonderful, they too might, would see it and they would begin to love chess. So I always tried to show things that I loved as much as possible, but making them help with the student where, where what I could. But in the case of Josh, he had a lot of focused eye movement that showed me he was thinking. Because chess, as they indicated earlier, was a game of spatial relations. Every single thought in a child's mind is evinced in their eye movement. Hmm. So you just follow their eyes, you can see that they're thinking. If there's a lot of intelligent eye movement, you know that kid has it. The first time I ran into Joel Benjamin at the board and had to uh, write a note to George Kane, who was my associate, we worked together, many students, and I did also said this to his parents, and they marveled at it in the beginning. We we still have that index card that I wrote wrote it on, which I I think I'd given a copy to Joel back. I think it's I don't remember the date, seventy three, four or five. I don't even remember anymore. Uh, I said I described Joel as having very intelligent eyes. That was an indicator mm. of the promise I thought he had. Of course, you can't predict that a student will become a grandmaster. You know that's sure. that's ludicrous. <laughs> don't even don't even don't even go there. 
<laughs> but you can you can predict that they're going to enjoy chess, and that will probably impel them to the next levels. I see. I see. So eye movement is a big indicator, but not an absolute one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no one thing that always stands out. Uh, there's no one thing about any aspect of chess except checkmate. <laughs> the game is over at that point. Even right. in describing checkmate, by the way, it's not so easy to do that with the public. No, yeah, for sure. So just a, a few questions about the Queen's Gambit to, to mostly close this interview. Did you at all have a gut feeling before the Queen's Gambit was released that it would cause the chess boom that it did? No, of course not. I knew it would, it would be have some value. Quite obviously, the script was adapted by um, Scott Frank, who's also a remarkably brilliant screenwriter, mm-hmm. uh, like Steve Zalian for Searching Bobby Fisher. He, he he pretty closely adapted it to Walter's novel. He didn't change much. He followed that, and he was very much on the money. And so much is determined not in this. You need a good script. Everything is a good script, more so than anything else. Sure, because you, you play off that. Uh, he, he gave us that, and he's pretty true to Walter's novel. Um, but I had no idea it would, you know, things would ramify and explode out uh, like that. But I can tell you this: having seen the dailies and and having watched uh, Anya Taylor Joy in action, mm-hmm. um, I knew it was going to really have a powerful impact on chess culture on on culture of the world and of course it did but not to the extent it did that was unpredictable people always ask by the way is uh, beth Harmon based on an individual in particular of course i can't say in working with walter tevis back in 1982 when i first saw the manuscript the book was published in 83 uh, the answer is no he never said it was based on any one individual but what was in his mind i don't know uh he was a very good novelist and uh, top Hollywood screenwriter. He had done The Hustler. And I, it was a fun experience working with him. I can remember sitting in his uh, brownstone, I think, in the 30s, and just off Park Avenue or Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. And it was years ago. And um, he'd be getting a call from Paul Newman and other stars like that. He said, I, I just spoke to Paul Newman to get off the phone. And he said, you know, he's going to do The Color of Money. Well, Walter was writing The Color of Money then as well. So really? Yeah. But they got this new guy. I don't know. You think you know anything about this new guy? It's called Tom Cruise. Of course, Tom (laughs) Cruise is starting to be already a major star. You know. Right. So Walter wasn't always up on things like that. But his course on writing uh, was brilliant. I learned a lot from it, Hmm. and I, I got a great deal working from him but i don't think he changed anything or i mean any any of my put any of my suggestions into effect even though he said he put them all into into place <laughs> that was uh that was a small question i had for you about that because i've heard you say that in other interviews how i think it was roughly uh 10 um you know significant recommendations that you made for walter's manuscript for it but that he hardly used any of them did you get a chance at all to <laughs> revive any of those suggestions for the film well, I tried to get rid of the lemon fish variation. That was really hard. <laughs> that was kept. He loved the lemon fish variation because he loved the name. And, you know, you can get away with things 
on the printed page you can't do visually in, in a in a film or television series because people can see it. Ordinary people can see it and still say you can't say a knight move when you can see that it's a rook that moved. Right. But you could do things like that in the printed page. Uh, and so he, he did take poetic license. I think he probably didn't want me to mess up the artistry of his writing. And I could understand that. He was an artist. Yeah. Um, I'm a chess guy, you know. Um, but so I, I could appreciate that. I did the yeah. best I could anyway. That's all you can do. Give the yeah. best advice possible. Well, <laughs> the results speak for themselves <laughs> on this one, for sure. Did any of the actors that you helped consult on the set of The Queen's Gambit ultimately take an interest in chess beyond just, you know, their, their obligation to, to their character? I can't really say because I haven't followed up with them. I mean, I've talked to some of them, including Anya afterwards, but um, she has no time. She's such a huge star. She's in such demand. She doesn't have any time for any personal activities, as far as I know. But um, she would certainly be a good chess player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there was only one player who was already a good player. That is, was probably a seventeen or eighteen hundred level mm-hmm. player who was had a, a decent role, uh, and that was I've even forgotten the character's name now. <laughs> uh, it was the one the, the Smithlaw Petrosian like character. He had to play in the next to last round before facing Bor- she had played before facing Borgoff. Okay, yeah. Uh, and that player, who was actually the, the line producer on the whole project, and as he was responsible for the nuts and bolts of who gets paid what, mm-hmm. he was about maybe an 1800 player was from Germany. Almost all the, uh, the, it was the film, the series was filmed in Berlin. Mm-hmm. You know, more than 90% of it was filmed in Berlin. Uh, some of it was in Toronto, some of it in New York and, and LA, you know, in the studio. But, uh, 90% in Berlin, so it was a German cat, a crew, rather, crew. Uh, and uh, he was the best chess player on it. I think there were one or two grandmasters, even a, there was a Polish grandmaster who was uh, an extra, which just seemed to, you know, we felt badly about that. He was an extra. <laughs> there were 92 core positions that I developed for it. Gary Kasparov, who was brilliant, as always, uh, developed six of the positions, which he modified from real games, which he relied on computer analysis. But he, but even some of those had to be changed, including the final position by me at the last moment, because it didn't work for filming purposes. We had to get the king in the center, I think, on D2 at the end. So we had to modify the, um, it was a game of Patrick Wolf's. Oh, that's interesting. You get to modify the game itself for the, the camera oh, angle. No, yeah, it didn't work for filming purposes. The actors couldn't quite do it right. Or so uh, so uh, things had to be changed. But Gary was indispensable. Um, just the, the spirit of Gary. You know, he called from around the world, wherever he was. And uh, I, I did get particular, but most of the positions remained that remained were from me. Most of them are trivial. But you know what? There were even like 300 more positions that were developed that you never saw. To get a certain sense of reality, you'd have the extras uh, to the side playing real positions that were set up by the German crew who were quite good. Uh, these, these guys were fantastic. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's great attention to detail. Just to create a sense of reality, yeah. even the positions that were not filmed were just as real. A lot of work went into that. Yeah. 
But it all stemmed from the 92 initial positions that I developed upon reading the script. And this, um, with Gary's uh, six improvements and then later adjustments. Uh, so, there you have it. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And obviously the film uh, just has incredible and, and wonderful in of itself and it's just done so much for for the chess world and uh, just thrilled that, that it happened and that you were a part of it, Bruce. Just to uh, finish the interview here, uh, one final question for you. I know you said earlier that you're you know, really, uh, you say, busy with uh, coaching students, and that's wonderful to hear. I'm curious if there are any other projects that you're working on, uh, chess projects, that you can preview or describe a little bit about right now. I never know what I'm working on, you know, the next day at all. I have a rough <laughs> schedule. Things are constantly uh, in uh, change or flux. Uh, yeah, I, I can't, I'm involved in various film discussions. Hmm. There may be more on the horizon. Who knows? Um, I'm thinking about doing the memoir, but what it was like to become a chess teacher. I think there's a book there, uh, for other chess teachers. And certainly it, it seems such a strange thing to make a living on back in, in 1972. Um, so I think I had a lot of observations, experiences that were fun to share. I would, I would love to be able to do that. The, the famous people I met, you know, from world famous people like John Lennon talking chess. I still remember a party I went to, um, which was prior to the Fisher Spassky match, a small party of 10 to 12 people, which was a arranged at an art school by my then girlfriend. And so I got to go to this party and I sat around 10 o'clock in the evening, John Lennon walked in and he sat next to me with Yoko Ono. And I was, of course I was, my head was in the uh, stars <laughs> and he asked what I did. I told him I was, I, I played chess and he made some joke about Bobby Fisher, who was even then before the Fisher Spassky match was in the news. Uh, maybe it was just on the cusp of that. I don't remember all the details. And to, we all laughed hysterically. To this day, I can't remember what the joke was. I wish I could recall John Lennon's joke about <laughs> Bobby Fisher <laughs> being next to John Lennon. And I've been next to so many famous people and had exchanges like that. So I'd like to, where I could, put some of that down. Some of it's fascinating and fun. It's all, you know, trivial stuff in a way. But it was fun to go through it. Yeah, well, I would love to read a memoir of your of your stories of your career, Bruce. I mean, it's hard to imagine that anyone listening to the show wouldn't also. So I'll just put in my two cents and say I would love to hear, I'd love to see you do that, and um, I hope it does come out one day. And it's also exciting to hear that you are um, in talks on other film projects as well. <laughs> Again, I can't I can't think of a chess film where I wouldn't want you working on that uh, on that project. So so that's exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Sure, absolutely. Bruce, I just want to say thank you so much for all your time today. And uh, finishing on a, on a story with John Lennon um, and chess is <laughs> ideal for me since I'm a, a huge Beatles fan and chess fan. So that was a great way to finish it. But again, I value your time so much, Bruce. You, you know, you have just such a wealth of, of experience and stories. And uh, I know every listener here is going to be excited uh, about this interview. So thank you so much for your time today, Bruce. Uh, it's a true honor having you on the show. Thank you, Daniel. It's been, it's been a joy.
and good luck to you. And here's to chess. Yes, here's to chess. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.